Welcome, listeners, to Assiduous Dust. I'm your host, Joshua Corwin, and get ready for Assiduous Dust, episode number eight, featuring Mark Olmsted and Timothy Gager. It's going to be a wild ride, and as always, this is the home of the on-the-spot collaborative poem, so get ready, relax, and enjoy the show. Thank you, Mark Olmsted, for being on. It is a pleasure to have you on Assiduous Dust, You're the home of the on-the-spot collaborative poem, and it's a pleasure to have you. Listeners, you are in for a treat. For those of you who don't know uh, about Mark Olmsted, here's a little bit about him. Just a little bit about him. Allen Ginsberg said, Mark Olmsted inherited Burroughs' scientific nerve and Kerouac's movie-minded line nailed down with gold eye beam in San Francisco. That's from New Directions in Prose and Poetry, number 37. Olmsted appeared in that same volume as well as in City Lights Journal, Outlaw Bible of American Poetry, and a large variety of small presses, so many. He has four books of poetry, Milky Desire, which is published with Subterranean Press, 1991, Resume, uh, Inevitable Press, 1998, What Use Am I, A Hungry Ghost, which has an introduction by Allen Ginsberg and is published with Valley Contemporary Press in 2001, and Fresh Lotus Rehab with Virgo, Virgo Gray Press, I hope I pronounced that correctly, in 2001. Twice nominated for a Pushcart Prize, Olmsted received the San Francisco Acker Award for Poetry in 2014, along with David Meltzer and Ishmael Reed. Mark, you have... It's again, it is really a pleasure to have you on and thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. You're most welcome. You know, I, I, as someone who is, you know, still doing, um, you know, who's doing the whole poetry and the whole book scene and everything and it been through so much. Uh, with the, you know, the poetry project, or I guess the late, you know, more so toward of certain sides of it later on, and, um, you know, worked with S.A. Griffin and so many other in, uh, just amazing individuals from, mem- you know, I- I'm really curious. You're breaking up. Thank you so much. Um, again, Mark Olmsted, it is a, Mark, it is a pleasure to have you, and you've been through and seen so much of changes in the poetry scene. And it's a real honor to have you here. Oh, well, thank you, man. Yeah. And and I really, um, I know we have a mutual individual, uh, uh, a mutual friend, Richard uh, Modiano, who I just love dearly. And he's spoken so highly of you. And so many individuals have praised you. and, And I wonder... If you would just just there is so much going on, particularly with the pandemic and how really that affects a major shift. There's been so much shift, so many shifts in reading and books and with technology and indie presses. And how, 
how does this have you found that the pandemic and as well as the digital age um, has really influenced not just um, the way individuals interact for poetry, but the actual poetics um, and, and the substance behind poems or what uh, constitutes a poem. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. I think it's really important thing that not, I don't know, maybe people are talking about it. I'm just, I'm curious your thoughts. Well, I think the most interesting thing since, let's say, the development of the uh, cyber age and the web page, and now in particular the Zoom meetings <laughs> and readings, uh, that uh, there is a, a, a great connection occurring. And I like that very, very much. In terms of it influencing the poem itself, uh, it, it doesn't really influence me in terms of how I write or even how I read the poem aloud. Uh, but I think it's a great way to get things out to people and uh, have people see what you're doing all over the world, which is pretty amazing. Strictly the result of the cyber age and uh, the there's so many Zoom readings now. I don't know whether anyone right. is actually It's watching. so many. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I you know. <laughs> I but, think they'd but, rather like say, oh, it's on YouTube. Uh, now I can watch it when I feel like it. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, it, it's that, really I incredible. We're looking at it, you know. Yeah, like, I'm, I, could, I'm not, mm-hmm. I could go to a reading that, um, for example, you know, with Timmy the Gager, uh, uh, Tim Gager, who's on, who's um you know, out in Massachusetts and hosting yeah. something. And I'm in California. I don't even have to leave my 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 home. Yeah, that's great. And the same is true, interestingly, you know, uh, talk about tech savvy. A, 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 a number of my dearest Tibetan lamas, I think enabled by their students, are actually uh, using Zoom to do practices and do meditation and, uh, you know, live. And so it's like being with them. And there is a palpable quality of being with them in cyberspace, different than, for instance, watching them later on YouTube, to actually be present with them, feel like uh, there's some sort of almost mind link up, uh, which is an enormous relief during this COVID even more so than the poetry connections. Um, right. And there's that connectivity. And I find that there, there's nothing, though, that beats physical. There's sort of this energy that you can really feel. You can well, that's feel, very true. Yeah. And, but still, nonetheless, it's great that there can be some version of not just like a presence of a connection, but also this emotional sort of feeling connection that is hard very hard to express in words that has its mm-hmm. own quali- qualitative feel this raw feel if you will that's associated with uh phenomena and the nature of things as we experience them and you know mm-hmm. it, it, it you know i've dabbled into um 
you know, a bit of some Hasidic uh, literature and certain Mm -hmm. things. And I just want to say that I find that, you know, meditation also can influence um, my poetry as well. And I know that it's done a great deal for you. um, And you've done some classes that you've done uh, that you've taught. And, you know, I hope at a certain point you'll do more classes um, Mm -hmm. regarding meditation and bringing it in to really channel it because there's something really interesting going on. Um, I just wonder if you could share a bit about your experience with bringing in your uh, meditative tradition that you've used. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, I, I think you've done some stuff with Vajrayana. Oh, Vajrayana. Um, uh, yes. yes. Uh, if but, you could explain yeah. a bit about that and kind of like how you've done, utilize that or other methods and mm-hmm. brought it in to the these poems that we kind of breathe free and, you know, how it's helped you to respect and the process. And mm-hmm. Because for some people, they might not be um as aware of that that's a possibility mm-hmm. that you can do and hopefully this if those who listen might be inspired to go about that ah well uh you know all all of buddhism whether vajrayana which is the so-called tibetan buddhism or all the buddhism of the world basically whatever the flavor uh and it is a lot like 31 flavors of ice cream (laughs) uh whatever the flavor they all share the tradition of what is so popular now mindfulness uh so mindfulness practice is often done uh with awareness of the breath as a starter and often done with eyes open which is a complete uh, change from what most people regard as meditation. Right. You know, uh, sitting in solitude, cl- uh, you know, you know, legs crossed with, you know, fingers right. in a posture, you know, those eyes closed, that whole stereotypical well, even, feel. even uh, fingers, you know, for instance, in Zazen, uh, there's right. fingers are in a certain posture, which is a form of mindfulness. But the main idea is that there's uh, establishing some sort of uh, direct awareness uh, and all of this of course comes strictly from Allen Ginsberg that's none of my ideas in this regard and he is the enormous influence in this regard because I met him uh, I first uh, wrote him and got a postcard and he mentioned his teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche who is now deceased as is Alan and uh, then later I happened to blunder into a lecture of Chogyam Trumpa's Rinpoche in Berkeley and saw I met Ginsburg there like two years later and he uh, he taught me to sit uh Ginsburg did you know uh and uh I did see Trumpa a few times he was already you know very very uh uh he had a lot of students so there was like no way I was going to be close to him right he 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 influenced me a great deal, Trungpa certainly, and I still read him to this day. There's a lot of posthumous material, but you know this is the whole thing that everyone I think is aware of. You know this first thought, best thought, which we hear about, 
Right. Uh, in fact, the other day, somebody had said that to me, you know, it's mm-hmm. a motto to keep in mind. It's important. Well, the interesting thing is, is towards the end of Ginsburg's life, he sort of uh, he sort of revised that. So he said, first thought, no thought, then see what comes up. So that is very much like the notion of meditation itself. You know, that we're not trying to say, oh, is this the first thought? Is this the first thought? Is this the first thought? Yeah. But instead without an create, expectation or a labeling. Right. Well, to to allow whatever is going on and then be aware that there is some sort of gap, because that's how we are able to think. Are there are gaps between our words or gaps between our thoughts. And out of that gap comes the next thought. So that becomes very much the tradition of of many of the beats, as Philip Whalen said. Uh, my poetry is a graph of uh, my mind in motion. And uh, that is something that really fascinates uh, many of the beats. And of course, it goes back even to people like James Joyce. And you see in Ulysses the 40-page sentence that ends. I have Ulysses right, uh, you know, I just looked over right beside me. You know, I... It's interestingly enough, you know, it's yes, that's, one of those things. That's, what's synchronicity? <laughs> yeah. I actually happen to have, uh, you know, uh, I think beat Zen, uh, uh, square Zen and Zen out of Alan Watts. That was yeah, City I Light. Actually, I'm not particularly <laughs> fond of that one, to tell you the truth. Oh, really? Uh. Yeah, because he's a... Uh, uh, you know, Kerouac and Watts went back and forth, uh, kind of as rivals, you know, and, uh, you might find it interesting. I literally have next to that old angel midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like old angel midnight very much, but, uh, Watts, you know, I really like Watts's way of Zen. Mm. He certainly, uh, you know, that book way of Zen is probably my favorite of his, but, you know, he himself w- was kind of a, uh, at a certain point, kind of a dilettante, really. So He's a he bit of a rascal. More than that, that would be the kindest thing to say. Okay, uh, okay. You know, he didn't really sit, at, you know, and I, I don't, you know, towards the end of his life, certainly, he kind of was into the idea like, well, if it doesn't make any difference whether you sit or not, then I won't sit because I don't feel like it. And, uh, well... That's kind of stupid, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But yeah. certainly, you know, for very we, we need man, to challenge ourselves in order to sometimes challenging helps to accept. Well, there is a you know there there is an understanding that uh, in in the highest view of Buddhism that we're enlightened already, but there has to be some sort of uh, uh, there has to be some sort of training, and that's what meditation is. There has to be some sort of taming of the monkey mind. As my own teacher, Tarzan Rinpoche, said, I, I love this about him. You know, he's Tibetan, and he said, uh, this monkey mind has led us astray for so many eons. You know, he's talking about lifetimes. And he says, so now is the time to say, chill out, motherfucker monkey. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go that. i love that that's terrific you know you think it's going one way but then it goes another way and you know i've found that for me i've i've uh 
you know, I went from thinking that I could prove that meditation is impossible and yeah. that I thought that enlightenment was like just, you know, something that was BS that was yeah. made up and it's for the dead. And, you know, and and I went from that to being able to, you know, now I when I don't meditate or at least have 45 minutes of quiet time to read mm -hmm. some, you know, literature to sit, to let my mind do its thing. And just, I have a chair and a blanket when I don't, mm -hmm. if I don't do that, I don't feel as connected for the day. And mm -hmm. I know that's a daily thing for, you know, a few years, two, three years or so. And to get there and to notice that difference of how that shapes you and your relations to things, as well as how you can shift language and use it in different ways I find can sometimes be an analogy or an eagle eye into thinking about poetry itself mm -hmm. uh, as a well, mode of expression you know uh, one of Ginsburg's maxims was you know in terms of writing was observe what's vivid and, <laughs> uh, and I think that's what you're talking about Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, but, you know, this idea of enlightenment, you know, at a certain point, <laughs> uh, at a certain point, as you yourself have just expressed, it becomes really, once you actually have some sort of meditation practice that that is on some level at least enjoyable, uh, I think it becomes its own reward. And then uh, enlightenment is not so much uh, this uh, horrific ambition. <laughs> you know that 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 because uh, as as Trump said, we're not going to be able to watch ourselves get enlightened. You know, uh, because uh, ultimately, you know, as uh, as Dogen said, uh, you know, to study Zen is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. You know. There you uh, go. So, and, you know, it's mm -hmm. uh, I dabbled in some, uh, you know, Islamic philosophy and I looked up, mm -hmm. you know, into, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, uh, fauna fila. Oh, uh, I don't know that. Is uh, that like uh, fauna, uh, Sufi? It's the, Sufi the, yeah, uh, yeah. For the yeah. forgetting of forgetting, the forgetting of forgetfulness, that you forget oneself and then you forget. And I think you'd come to state for Al-Baqa Baqa or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I might be uh, mixing that up. It's been... A year well, or so. certainly, certainly Sufi is, uh, you know, yeah. a great uh, tradition, as is, uh, you know, as 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 my more uh, scholarly friends, the Kabbalah rather than uh, Kabbalah. Uh, mm -hmm. David Meltzer would say Kabbalah, uh, <laughs> you know, that 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 all has uh, uh, great uh, wisdom. Absolutely. And, and so. I, I know that you, um, you know, you, you got uh, close with, 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 you became close with Ginsburg, uh, that you got, had some, you know, you have a, a book of, as well of, of, that you have of letters, um, yeah. mm -hmm. of, uh, of correspondence and just, you know, what the desire to like put that out or put that forth. Um, and when bringing it up again, uh, you know, it, it, what did that do? Did that bring up certain things in you? Um, you know, I, I know you're, you've been working on many different notes that you've been putting together. You know, hopefully mm -hmm. there's some more things to come. Uh, yes, that, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And, 
and um yeah and and what you know how do those you know ever um ever kind of vividly intensify and you're like i'm drawn to this i need to work on this i need to go to this and what what and something that might be helpful for those who are just beginning to realize that poetry isn't just this rhyme thing this rhyme game because there are individuals who still who you know think that it's this very um it is structured but it doesn't have to be and there's structure in this unstructured way much of what um what what Ginsburg and many of the beats and others developed and um really looked into um and how has all these things just come up for you or memories while putting this book uh together as well as your um you know reviewing old notes right well that's a very interesting question mainly because you know i think first of all you know one of the things that uh ginsburg would remind uh in his various essays was that whitman was the one who expressed uh the need for candor uh, i have leaves of grass next to right that, on top of joyce by the way uh-huh i'm sure they're very happy together uh yes but uh uh ginsburg added uh candor ends paranoia so uh the process of of going over those letters uh, you know, first of all, I've discovered that all of the letters that I had sent to Ginsburg were in uh, Stanford Special Collections. You know, he had sold his his collection of everything, and he was an incredible archivist. And he had all my letters, uh, and they were all now in Special Collections. <laughs> so I asked for copies of them all, and I got them all. And then I realized that I could match them up with uh, the letters I had of Ginsburg's. And that was really the origin of the entire process, because, of course, that kind of activated everything, especially seeing the letters that I didn't have copies of. And now they have my correspondence as well. I mean, Ginsburg's correspondence with me, what he sent to me, is also now there in special collections, so anyone can look at them. But the main thing, of course, in terms of candor and uh, ending paranoia is, you know, I, I, I'm now uh, almost 67, and everyone is dead in my family except for my niece. And uh, How uplifting. Frankly, well, Sorry. <laughs> you know, this is what happens. Uh, and uh, But uh, eventually, I mean, in some ways, uh, this allowed gave me permission because, you know, I had a neurotic relationship with Ginsburg for a good six years, you know both in uh, San Francisco and New York and uh, Boulder, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I was somewhat embarrassed about that. And, uh, you know, then everyone dies and not so embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, death is a good way to, to, to end embarrassment. Well, yeah, it certainly, I no longer was, a, you know, I think in particular, I would have had trouble, uh, particularly with my father knowing about this, and even my mom, who, you know, towards the end of my life, you know, I can remember her, you know, she had this uh, 
uh, smoker's voice and uh, she said uh, she said would you consider yourself bisexual mark and uh, you know <laughs> it was like it's like within the last couple of years of her life and it was like oh god <laughs> you know? how, how do I answer this well, um, I said, do I, I said, yeah mom I, I guess that's right and uh, yeah. that was all there was to it but she still didn't realize she she <laughs> she knew Ginsburg you know had been very nice to me I did, but she never let on that she thought that we had slept together and you know multiple times uh, more times than I can count and I would have had trouble. I would have been in, I would have had trouble. And so even in writing about it candidly in the uh, in the book, you know, I talked later to um, Peter Hale, who is the head of the Ginsburg estate now. Right. Uh, you know, and I said, you know, it was pretty intense to write that out and say all that because, you know, there were times. You know, it was interesting because there were times in the late 70s before AIDS where being bisexual was very hip. You know, we Bowie and, and Jack. Right. Oh, of and course. Of course. Lou Reed. We, you know, we pretty much knew they yeah. all slept together. And, uh, you know, then all of a sudden AIDS hits. And, you know, it was like I became, you know, the poster child for, you know. Oh, did you sleep with anyone who slept with men? You know, and it's like, fuck, I slept with Mark Olmsted. You know, <laughs> it was like kind of. Uh, I just gotta to... say, was it any good? What was it good to sleep with Ginsburg? Was that was Ginsburg? he uh, was he any good? That's a good question, actually. Yeah, well, sure, he was very. You know, the whole thing is is that you know, it's a um. Really, uh, I'm impressed uh, by your your candor. I don't know that anyone has asked that, but um, you know he's a nice man, and uh, certainly uh, you know gave permission for a lot of uh, you say by curious now a lot of questioning straight boys to investigate be lying. He didn't really. Uh, he wasn't pushy in terms of what you might do or not do. Uh, you know, it's up to you, really. So uh, over over time, you know, uh, I did, you know, you know, get fucked by Allen Ginsberg. But, uh, you know, that was not on the uh, originally. I mean, since you asked <laughs> originally, he he showed me, he said, this is how I used to um, fuck Neil. And, and it would be like he would. He would like in a sort of missionary position, you would kind of uh, push between the legs of your partner and uh, mm. and, you know, Neil Cassidy. And so, you know, that's can you imagine? I mean, all this history that's like saying, oh, this is how he fucked Neil. On. Yeah. And it becomes more so, than that. It becomes a whole thing. And, and it's really interesting to think about. That. And, and what I mean by that is, is that how, you know. When someone becomes more than just who they are in terms of when you think about them, right. and then you talk about you know sex or certain thing with that, you know how does that affect you know the memory of an other individual and what does it say yeah. about them and about the act or certain or all these things? There are so many questions. It's really yeah. fascinating, and it could be you know for many 
essays in 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 um, of studies. You know, I went to school at at Pitzer College, and they would just love, you know, probably of certain departments dealing with that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Well, and, and they it, should talk to me before I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can I'm see about that. A little longer. I'm in good health. Okay. Now. Uh, yeah, I think the beats, you know, interestingly, just on that subject, I think mm-hmm. the beats are a little retro right now, but they'll, they'll eventually be rediscovered. We'll see if it happens in my lifetime. I think on the academic uh, uh, sort of MFA level, they're considered sort of, uh, uh, you know, like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And probably the last thing they're interested in, in a lot of ways, as I discussed with some of my writer friends who were trying to advance their Careers, I said, you know, being a, a middle, middle class white boy following the beats, you know, of course, white man now, right? Uh, you know, in, in his uh, influences is like kind of a death knell in terms of people's uh, interest. And on top of that, I, it was interesting because uh, uh, Bob Rosenthal, who was Ginsburg's secretary for many years, Right. Uh, actually said that they talked about they often talked among themselves about what they called the Ginsburg curse, which was that if Ginsburg promoted you, that in some ways there seemed to be a kind of resentment, you know, uh, that many of his, you know, uh, the poets that he uh, said were good. Uh, and, and trust me, they were not all, all uh, you know cute shall we say <laughs> and i don't there know whether he slept with all of them he may have he may have you know one or two but uh i get the feeling that in many of the relationships that i'm familiar with i'm friends with most of these people um, that so you know tell me more about the ginsburg curse well so uh, Bob Rosenthal, uh, actually, uh, who was Ginsburg's secretary for many years, said that he was talking with his, you know, the various people who worked for Ginsburg, and uh, you know, he had a little, little uh, cottage industry by the end of his life, uh, and uh, basically, he was saying that maybe getting uh, Ginsburg's endorsement might actually be a curse because it seemed to. Uh, it seemed to provoke a kind of resentment, like, oh, 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 this guy, you know, set Ginsburg off, so that's why he's being nice, and, you know. And uh, so uh, as a result, I don't know whether it was that all that helpful, ultimately, uh, it, it, at least in those days. It may turn around like everything, but, um, you know, uh, that was essentially that that perhaps the – stamp of approval from Ginsburg was an almost surefire way to provoke jealousy and resentment and, and dismissal to a certain degree, even though I think it's obvious that that uh, the poets themselves are good. The three main poets that are generally associated as being, let's say, on the A-list are uh, Antler, Andy Clausen, and David Cope. And uh, I think Antler is probably the best known and then there was a sort of, you know, a lot of the list, you know, then you would see, for instance, in uh, City Lights, uh, Journal Number 4, or 
right. uh, uh, New Directions, number 37. I think all of they're all included, and also uh, I'm there, and uh, right. Robert and, and, Myers, I think. Uh, and and Ginsburg said some lovely stuff about you for that, and you know, oh, well, was yeah, that, but you know, yeah, that was that his not, introduction? That may not have been helpful, or, ultimately, is what, what uh, Bob Rosenthal was saying. Like, right, uh, exactly. Who knows? I mean, you know, it's like trying to as as I think I started to say, I can't remember if we covered this already, but the uh, middle class uh, uh, white boy post beast right, exactly. is, is is completely uh, uninteresting in the current climb. You know, right, because like, it get, has this get total to the back different of the line, buddy. Well, it has this total different thing. It doesn't mean what it was. It's totally a different thing, and. It, it's interesting how politics and certain things really shape our conception and understanding of terminology as well as how culturally things shift over time. Uh, and I wonder um, if you have perhaps a poem uh, that, that you would share regarding um, just Ginsburg and, um, you know, and – your um your time with him uh i would i would love it if you would uh grace us and read that so you know maybe not uh sharing something about uh a poem with 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 uh, about your experience with Ginsburg, but maybe, maybe you know, let, let's talk about some more modern, uh, some of the things you're doing uh, more recently. I know you, you have this book of letters, letters uh, to Ginsburg and all those things. Would you share something that perhaps more of the modern uh, poetry pieces that you've, that you've uh, done recently, you know, if you would grace us with that, that would well, be thank you. lovely. Yeah. Let me lay something on you. I think it will be obvious from, uh, you know, uh, I think the influence is obvious here and hopefully not uh, horribly derivative. Here's a recent poem uh, really talking about COVID and mm. and uh, the recent protests and uh, the body snatcher. Karloff and Lugosi, horror actors on TV, 19th century surgery. Cadavers I have known and loved. The little girl can't walk in her Victorian wheelchair. I am old in white face, hiding from COVID. My wife sick, but not with the virus. My wheelchair is the television, watching protest across the nation, ashamed. My wheelchair is shelter in place, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. My wheelchair is sensible like shoes and a tie. My wheelchair is a noose. My wheelchair is an unraised fist. My wheelchair is a plate glass window looking at the plague world. My TV is an iron lung. It can't hear me inside, screaming. <sighs> yeah, that really says a lot. Um and hits on so many 
different points about, you know, looking at systemic racism, uh, what's going on in our country, and also all these things of ways can, you know, was I as aware of what is going on? And what does that say Mm -hmm. as someone as, you know, me as a white male, you know, Jewish boy, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or man, I guess, (laughs) adult Mm -hmm. man, uh, how does Mm -hmm. that, you know, can I have more open eyes and what there are certain experiences I won't have or certain things, but I get to see a taste of what just a taste of what goes on and how can I, and what does it say about me and, and just dealing with that internal that, you know, that I wasn't doing something about what's going on and right. that yeah. I was as aware and what and how do I grapple and introspect upon that? And maybe that brings us back to also, um, you know, the moment and the certain mindfulness and meditative practices without of just being open to these feelings Mm-hmm. These expressions and kind of like expressing them with with candor mm-hmm. and openness mm-hmm. as, as a poetic mode of expression. As a poetic mode of expression. Yeah, mode of expression. Yeah, the interesting thing is, is also I, I was just writing to a poet friend today who sent me uh, a piece and I I. I, uh, you know, I was talking to my my poet friend Peter Marti, and I was talking about that uh, I had had this dream a couple of years ago that I had um, rediscovered. Let me let me see whether it's actually here. Uh, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, let me see if I can find it. Hold on, just one sec. Can you pause? Hold on. Yeah, or I could I could just. Um you know, tie it in right there as you're saying that, um, you know, it's really interesting how our relationships and connections with other individuals can, you know, bring up memories as we were talking about before and how that really affect our relationships and our connections and the synchronicity between events can be really amazing. Um, and meaningful. Well, I can't, I can't find it. Uh, let me see whether I, let me see if I, uh, uh, let me look at another thing here. Uh, uh, I would like to share this with you. Um, uh, course of dream. There we go. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got it. So this, I dreamt, this is like, you know, I keep, are you there? Yes, I'm still here. Okay. Uh, so this is actually, uh, you know, I keep, if a dream is vivid, I will write it down and it becomes like a, a journal. And so uh, it comments on what I was talking with uh, Peter Marti, who was very close to Corso. Uh, Corso scared me. Uh mm. Uh, but, uh, but I, I like. I know that Richard really, Richard Modiano, you know, adored, um, you know, studying Corso and, and getting to know and dealing yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know think that there's handled, some other. He handled Corso a little better than I did. Huh. Uh, but uh, it's still, I would see Corso from time to time, and uh, you know, I mean, he was, uh, 
he was truly like, uh, you know, like uh, the mad junkie prophet, you know. I mean, he, yeah. he it was very hard to hang around Corso and not be, you know, uh, shooting up if you were his pal. And uh, that was not true with Richard, but uh, it was somehow he managed to avoid that. But it was true with everyone else that I knew. But at any rate, so here's the dream. And it has a reference really to that poem that I just read, The Body Snatcher, uh, that I thought I discovered and, and typed up and sent to Richard uh, from 1-7-2016. Uh, dream, I kid with Gregory Corso, poet that an android will be made identical to him like Lincoln at Disneyland. He doesn't dig this and mentions when he first saw my poetry, he said, be careful of this one. He wants to be on top. Corso knows he got me and smiles. He then softens, starts giving poetry advice. Write about what you know, not the president. He also mentions, don't write about the plight of blacks. It's offensive to them. <laughs> so this is what I was mentioning to Peter. I was saying, you know, this is the challenge of attempting to talk about what's going on. You have to talk about your own experience, because when you start expressing your uh, uh, white guilt, uh, yeah. you know, even if you have certain political ideas or, or views, yeah. it's important that you you know you look at your experience, strength, and hope with things. And if you yes. come from that standpoint, you know you you take a different angle on things. You can be uh, uh, helpful and useful and really penetrate the minds. Right, but I think you have to relate to your own experience and not try to hold forth on what it's like to be black and how sad that is uh, right because that's just offensive and right. uh, you know it's it's one thing to to appear on the streets and in support which has been wonderful to watch yes and uh but it's another thing to attempt to uh in some to ways, appropriate to to, to, appropriate. In, to in in unintentionally uh Yes, co-opted in some way into, yes, I, uh, I've i always felt, uh, you know, I've always identified with the black man, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and the point is yeah. that, that, you know, sincerity is something that's really important uh, to, yeah. to truth, to the, to the yeah. grounding of truth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to, to be so unaware as to, like, say, you know, like, for instance, uh, uh, being a man and talking about, uh, uh, you know, the Me Too movement. Uh, there's just a certain degree, it's really not your story to tell, you know, uh, except in terms of, of your own uh, reevaluation of your behavior, which, of course, any uh, uh, feeling intelligent person who's had interactions, you know, uh, you know, who has a, you know, romantic life with women, has to reevaluate, you know, when there was pressure to have sex or, you know, uh, the various uh, expectations and resentments, you know, which is part of, I think, what happened with the uh, Me Too. Uh, right. And, it and it's important. Happened. Yes. And it's an important issue. And we, you know, it should be um, that one should be able to be respectful 
mm-hmm. and we shouldn't we should be able to make it such that later at a certain point in history we could say that we don't have this issue anymore we don't yeah. have to well, have this issue and hopefully with so many different things we can look back and see that just like as you know i i, I hope that that can happen and will happen i might be an idealist but mm-hmm. i really do hope so yeah I, I think, you know, it's one thing, you you know, as, as they say, you don't want to uh, mansplain, you don't want to whitesplain, you know, uh, you just want to uh, uh, examine yourself in, in and introspect and uh, and not and and, you know, not attempt to come out on the cool side of history with how many black friends you have or something like that that's really right because that's that's, just you know that's embarrassing (laughs) right and also it it's not you know the appropriate thing uh you know to do um that's not the you know what's important to do is just to be and to realize that people are people are people you know, my, my grandpa, as he passed away, which influenced a lot of my, you know, to get a workout, uh, you mm-hmm. know, work for my poetry, you know, his, I say that, his, you know, his final words, it was really his penultimate words were, were don't ever stop writing, but his very final words and, you know, I was alone with him there were, to me were, you know, as he's going into his, uh, you, know, you know, thing then became people are people because I'm like, you know, grandpa, how do I how, how do I deal with this and these certain intricacies of life and all these things? And this was last year. And it's and he said, people are people. And then it just came our people, people mm-hmm. are people are people. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if he was lucid for that, but there is some great truth to that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of a Gertrude Stein sort of thing. Uh, you know, I was also thinking about, you know, in the uh, Michael Moore film, Bowling for Columbine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they were talking to all these various people about, you know, uh, you know, what should we do about this? I mean, we're still talking about the school shootings, you know. Right. And, uh, you, you know, there was even some people who thought that uh, Marilyn Manson was somehow responsible you know which was ridiculous of course but so Moore talks to to Marilyn Manson and he and says what would you tell these these kids and he said I wouldn't tell them anything I would listen to them and I think that's really what we're talking about in terms of you know if we are not if we are among the privileged then it is our duty to shut up (laughs) right (laughs) And listen, Absolutely. And see what well, the, I would I would love it to listen to another one of your pieces. If, okay, uh, another you, one. Yeah. I'll give you, yeah, I'll give you uh, I'll give you something uh, which is again more of a of a this is before COVID, and it was actually pretty much before. Um, let's see. Here we go. Uh, so. Uh, it's about a retreat that I did with Anam Tupton Rebiche, who met Allen Ginsberg and is himself a, a poet, very interesting poet, uh, very good poet, uh, Anam Tupton. Uh, 
Rinpoche, but uh, I was on retreat with him. And so this is called Relax into the Natural State. One, waiting for a llama interview with this fuzzy-haired bear of a man. Startled, it was my reflection. Two, at the meditation retreat, I nodded into dreams like an old junkie. Three, the Airbnb code didn't work. The owner's phone number didn't answer. Repeating a mantra, I wandered the trash and shit-filled streets of Oakland night, pulling my luggage and found a motel near the freeway. Four, flight home to Portland. Wife will be happy to see me and kittens slower to forgive. Looking out on the tarmac, the solitary orange vest of the Ronin signaler with lightsaber down, cabin secure, dark adventure to the crack motel, just another dream. So there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And you know, in a way, you know, uh, you know, is that, you know, this country that, can feel right now like a crack motel. What's that? This country can feel like the a crack motel. Like a, I like a crack motel. Like that. That's a very great line. This country feels like a crack motel. This country is a crack motel. That's one of the things Ginsburg would say. You know, it's more interesting sometimes to have a metaphor oh. rather than a simile. Oh. I think I, I pulled that out stronger. of. St I think I think I pulled that out of uh, Stevenson's The Home Book of Quotations. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. That's a good start. Two more lines and you have a great poem. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, um, would you be interested in speaking of you know spontaneous? poems yeah do um and speaking of you know the crack motel uh uh of america the, yeah. the, the our country is a crack motel um yeah. speaking of that would you do the segment that is an on-the-spot collaborative poem a collaborative poem with me you uh, know i will <laughs> oh okay okay <laughs> Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I have the way this works. Um, you know, listeners, please do do this at home. Um, it's very groovy spiritual shit, in my opinion. I like doing it. Um, you know, we have a few different books out. Each of us, uh, uh, Mark and I have a few different books out. We're in different places. And, you know, I have, you know, a few books out opened held down and what we're going to do is wherever our eyes gaze we're going to read those those words and kind of piece together a line from wherever our eyes gaze sort of like as mark said you know kind of like a, a, a you know william carlos williams cut up but of you mean the a, a line Burrow, a burrows william Burrow. yeah william william burrows my bad i I hope to bury that that reference there. Um, <laughs> yeah, a, a Burroughs, a Burroughs, uh, you know, kind of like a Burroughs cut up, but of the line with multiple different 
books and has an exquisite corpse kind of uh, feel. Right. Yeah. So um, would you share the books that you have out? Mark? Uh, the Golden Dawn by Israel Regardi. Neurobiology by Gordon Shepard, a textbook, and The Universe and Dr. Einstein by Barnett. <laughs> Terrific. I have out, I have actually uh, Ginsburg's collected works from 1947 to 1980. I have it actually out to, uh, you know, page 373 and 372. So it's the end of, for the fall of America. Um, sure what exact that poem is from and then it, it goes to of uh carmel valley it's like the of that uh and then i have from the beat book i have out and it's out to page 310 so it's bob kaufman of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, uh, bombs um and then i have uh, neuroexistentialism which is a series of essays and so i have it out to one 152 of uh of uh walter glannon so 152 and 153 of that on uh of behavior control meaning in neuroscience and then i have watts's uh this is it out of uh particularly of beat zen square zen and zen pages Mm -hmm. 90 to 91 Mm -hmm. so those are what i have out so Mm -hmm. okay so you have your your books uh I do. You know, you uh, opened out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okie dokie. So um, would you like to start, Mark, or should I? Okay, I'll start. The, let's see. The thought rays are launched through the sphere of sensation. Grass, eyeglasses, riding, humming, sneezed aquariums. These results, together with those from studies using electrophysiological recordings. Tiny cars or square revolt social role OCD patients shaking their fists at ab an anthem bop bop. This simple statement is the essence of Einstein's special theory of relativity. Through neon metal, shaky messiah, armed getting God drag insane jealousy. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the assemblies. Music composed by Caribou, Durat, Schlow, Current, Control, Blow Low, Blow Low, Behavior, Control, Bop, Bop, Dancing, San Francisco, Zen Air, Hoof Marking. Membrane excitability, which is mainly due to voltage dependence. Since 2,000 years of feel-good beat mentality deliberation actions. 
a universe permeated with an invisible medium in which the stars wandered and through which light traveled. Waylo, Waylo, coughing our general neuroscience in clinical entities, not, I think... It represents a tower struck by a lightning flash. Ramp wanderings to city light daily papers, tranced in contrary free commenting. Receptor cells and sensory fibers have their best stimulus. Interacting as psychiatrists, but not identical to their carport's brains. It no longer matters how we visualize an electron. Of action plans. The grade of neophyte has zero or the circle for its number as if hiding all things under the negative symbol. Look up song, axe, oh, oh, hiccuping bathtub. They exist in the abstract play. A new roll, raise, sun hill, yellow, tiny cars. The old city, ocean car, psychological cabin exclusion. Bane, 2011. Too little. The fibers carrying taste information make their synapses centrally in the medulla. Nutty hashish over caliph poetry vast region. The rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Amen. New age unique method. Look up, look up, provides a interaction of thoughts control. Hoofmarking the auto caliph popcorn squares end American way. Diffraction patterns analogous to those produced when light is passed through a pinhole. A balance between how describing or explaining filled green, rational hedekas. Finally, at the bulbar output bottom, narrowed or more specific response spectra. Misty-eyed, single, unruly hairs chanting earth cloud Fairy persona, I am. Then you will kneel down, repeat the sacramental name by which you are known in the order. This is it, conventional thought. The confusion turns away from the right correlativity of behavior control. The addition of a phosphate group activates the protein so that it can carry out a specific function. In shredded Bibles, 
The electromagnetic spectrum reveals the narrow range of radiation visible to man's eye. In honky-tonk television. Holy art thou, the vast and mighty one, lord of the light and of the darkness. Subcortical levels, bottom up, top-down conflicts. After frinking anthem, anthem stashed in courage. One must realize that the scientist whose task it is to describe physical events in objective terms cannot use subjective words. The street stole burglars. Moreover, activity of skeletal muscles requires the autonomic nervous system to divert blood from gut to muscles. Like twigs trembling insects in unknown. My robe is red because of uncreated fire and created fire, and I hold the banner of the morning light, which is the banner of the east. Munible, well that. Arcturus, right now, Arcturus is 36 light years away. From Elysium Valley, tree friends dancing in the Nava Gleed. Oh, oh, what neural, what squam and Control mind regarded concrete world of the American way. That sounds like a good end right there. <laughs> uh, okay, sounds good. <laughs> that, that, let's call that a wrap. You know, <laughs> why, you know, I think a good title for this would be, um, you know, uh, you know, our crock, our 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 country, our crack. Our crack our country, motel country. Our country is a crack motel. <laughs> our country is a crack motel. <laughs> yeah. I, I, how about that? that well, great. <laughs> thank you for joining, uh, for joining me and being on Assiduous Dust. It was a pleasure, Mark, to have you on. And for those who are interested, please do check out Mark's work. Um, Mark, where can they uh, get your your um your your book i think right. i think also at mark olmstead.com yeah mark olmstead.com will tell you everything and okay you'll see how my name is spelled uh on when this is when the podcast is uh played so that'd be the easiest for everyone okay well thank you so much and it was a pleasure to have you on and well, thank have you. a groovy day. I will. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Welcome. Welcome to Assiduous Dust. I'm your host, Joshua Corwin. And today, viewers, we have the great, amazing Timothy Gager. We're going to... Timothy is just an amazing individual. Uh, 
I've been told that sometimes he prefers Tim, but maybe I'll go back and forth. We'll see. And so for those of you who don't know about about uh, Timothy or Tim, uh, Timothy Gager is the author of 15 books of fiction and poetry. His latest, Spreading Like Wildflowers, is his eighth of poetry. He's had so many. He's had over 600 works of fiction and poetry published just Amazing, fantastic, I can't wait, of which 16, 16 have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Ladies and gentlemen and and non-binary individuals, whatever, wow, that's amazing. His work has been read on NPR, National Public Radio, and has also been nominated for a Massachusetts Book Award, Best of the Web, Best Small Fictions Anthology, and Tim is the fiction editor of the Wilderness House Literary Review and founding co-editor of the Heat City Literary Review. He's a graduate of the University of Delaware and Tim lives in Dedham, Massachusetts with some fish and two rabbits, I've been told, and he's employed as a social worker. Uh, Tim is also currently seeking representation for his third novel, Joe the Salamander, which was a semi-finalist for the Holland Prize, Timothy, Tim, it, it, wow, it's great to have you on. Is there anything you haven't done? In the literary world? Oh, there's plenty that I haven't done. You know, once uh, you think that you've done it all or you can't <laughs> get any better in the in the writing world or even within your own writing, like that's when you just tie a rock around your ankle and like jump off the dock. <laughs> That's where that's where it's going. Yeah, well, hopefully that won't happen, but uh, hopefully we'll get there in terms of uh, in a different way, not in a literal way. Sure. I mean, I look. Yeah. I mean, I I, in terms of like things I haven't done. I mean, I just I just love books and being around books and talking about writing and being around other authors. And like, you know, that's just uh, it just fascinates me. I'm like very extremely interested in all of it. So did you ever – so let's just dive into your world for a second. Um, did you ever think like let's say let's, – let's imagine five, six, seven, eight, maybe 12-year-old uh, Tim, Timothy Gager. And what – and did he ever think that he would be where you are now and – or let's say, you know – what what would you say to yourself uh, back then as words of advice or encouragement to kind of get where you're going? You do, you know, you do so many great things. You know, you're also, um, it's not listed here, but you also uh, host Dire Literary Series, which you, which you, which you had uh, brought back up in, in this uh, pandemic of this uh, current situation. You have, I think there's going to be, um, it might be finished by the time that this comes out, but we'll see what happens in terms of uh, uh, for the virtual series. How, how did you get involved into that? And, you know, like, you know, because those that's a big thing and you've done so many things. What would you say to your little Tim who wants to get going to um, these great possibilities? Because there's so many individuals who want to connect with poetry, with literature, who want to read and really immerse themselves in, and, and and what steps have you found in your experience uh w- would you suggest to get okay. the ball rolling 
I know that, that's a big this complex is about, this question. About, there's about 15 <laughs> questions in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just pick me, one and just let the cards fly. <laughs> the uh, the 12 year old uh, Tim Gager or Timmy Gager back then, uh, <laughs> he uh. He hated to write, man. And uh, really? maybe the maybe the only thing that I would be interested in writing for a career would be sports writing or sports journalism, because that's what I was really interested in as a 12 year old um, sports and following sports. And the other thing I was interested in was kind of avoiding the nooks and crannies of my school so I wouldn't get the shit kicked out of me. Those are my two. Ho- <laughs> those are my two hobbies. So. uh it wasn't until like I had the power and the control to write what I wanted to write before fiction and poetry even became a possibility. So what I would tell the 12 year old version of myself is, you know what, just let things come to you because the things that you'll end up doing and the things you'll end up doing in your life are the things that will kind of come to you and naturally come to you versus seeking. I mean, that's that's the best that's the best thing I can say. And in terms of like, you know, the, it seems like a lot of accomplishment, especially you read this bio and, the, you know, the bio is, you know, something that's a small novel as it is. But sure, sure. Um, yeah, you could have a novel exploring each little route. I, I sometimes think that there should be more of those called bio books that are these huge things, but not short. But that's I mean, that's like, you know, that's years of work. You know, I learned right, a lot. Right, of, of I learned course. a lot in my discipline of like one day at a time. That eventually you have a whole lot of days, or you have a whole lot of things. So you know, when I started writing seriously, right around uh, you know the year 2000, I even then I, I wasn't seeking to be like, okay, I'll run an, a literary series for 18 years and I'll write three novels and eight books of poetry. I mean, that's not where I started, and uh, I just had incredible amount of luck that very initially I found places that would publish my work. Now, there's probably something to that, that why that work got published. Um, but I, I thought it just was luck that uh, I didn't have that, that whole battle of rejection or rejected work. And, you know, maybe if I did, I would have just hung it up. But I certainly didn't. And it kind of kept me going. And I always got good feedback from my writing, rather it was like dark mm. and shadowy and like, you know, writing about nasty stuff. There was a market for that. And like it just seemed like every, there's a market for everything. <laughs> yeah. Every t- every time my writing morphed, it seemed to reach somebody or something. And, and I think that's luck. I mean, it does take some work to promote and try to find that. But, you know, um, as a writer, you sell yourself versus your work very often. And so if people like you, they're going to look into what you do and what you write and what you write about. And that's kind of the first step in. Yeah. And, and I think that you, you've also touched on a few important points, you know, one of which is going with the, the flow and that this isn't an overnight ordeal that, you know, writing is a lifestyle. There's a certain things as well. Um, and it's important and it, you know, for me, I speaking personally, you know, I, you know how I didn't like reading and any of that stuff. Sometimes I don't. Don't tell anyone. Oops, it's being recorded. Uh, anyway, but it, I find that 
you know, I studied mathematics and kind of found myself immersed into yeah. these things. And with certain ways, you know, I hear a professor who says, suggest this, someone suggests that. And after doing a thesis and boom, boom, you kind of talk to people and it's about, um, it's about like, you know, figuring out these connections and then going with it. And, you know, you said a big thing, you talked about, you know, criticism and, and, and your style and, and it, you know, and it, for me, and I wonder, you know, for you, if you could share about there's this um, this development, and this has been something for myself that I've looked at is you want to step out of the shadows, and you know, you know, can you take suggestions and find yourself with exactly, you know, open mindedness, and I wonder if you could share about like a particular experience where, um, you know, perhaps with your with your your first. Um, you know, full length book of, you okay. know, of, of, you know, where, where, or doesn't have to be there, but, you know, a particular, you know, experience where you're like, you know, you're getting some criticisms or certain things that, or, or, you know, positive or negative, you know, that helped you kind of do weave towards that direction because okay. for a lot of people, it, it, it's really challenging. Um, you know, uh, and, and it, it, it can be challenging and some people pick that up better yeah, than others. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what, here's what I would say about that. Now, first of all, I thought the best, edu- I, I said I didn't like writing, but I loved reading when I was 12 mm. and I got the best education ever from the books on my mother's bookshelf. You know, there was like, you know, Vonnegut and Heller and, you know, <laughs> all of, you know, all of the, the great writers from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, and their novels, you know, The Catch-22, and Portnoy's Complaint, etc., and, like, you know, that taught me how to write and how to flow into things by uh, reading it, and uh, in in terms of, like, writing and criticism, what I got out of it, um, I guess looking back, I mean, I'm stubborn, so, like, I I didn't necessarily... I'll let you in on a secret, so am I. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't this eureka moment, that I was like, oh, someone told me this, so I need to do that. It, it's more like a molding process. And, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, looking back at it now, like, um, I really don't like a lot of things I wrote 15, 20 years ago, to be honest <laughs> with you. Like, I'm my, I'm, and as a writer, I was always my worst critic. But there are certain very basics, and I, I believe that people need to write out the basic mistakes. I think that everyone, when they start, they're going to make certain mistakes, whether it's pacing, whether it's uh, word use, whether it's like really obvious plots, um, things like that, or a lot of cliches. And I believe that, like, you know, you can receive a lot of um, critiques and go with that, and they're very helpful. But if you're writing a lot and you're writing daily, you need to write all the bullshit out. You know, it's called, you know, writing out the crap. So, you know, yeah, let, the it, let, the sh- let the shit spew, you know, you got to yeah. let it do. I find that myself and, and, you know, you don't always take everything you do. Isn't always a, a pristine diamond, but it, it I mean, like, gets the, the fact, process going. Except the fact that, you know, acceptance to what you're going to start start with is probably not going to be very good and that's okay you know that's acceptance and like um i mean unless you're a prodigy but like i always kind of knew that like yeah i need to 
there, there's always, as I stated earlier, there's always ways to get better. And I always knew that. And I always knew that like my writing wasn't up to par with the greats that I read as a kid. And I wanted to get at that level. And it, it just took a lot of writing to write all the crap out, to write all the bad out. And, uh, you know, and this, I'm still writing things that, you know, I weed out the bad from. Mm. Yeah. So I wonder, would you, you know, share a bit um, of, of, of one of the, <laughs> if, you, if you'd like one of, one of your, your earlier, uh, your earlier works of, uh, you know, we talked a bit about with your fiction of, of poetry that you had done. Um, if, if you would share one sure. of those earlier things, what maybe, or, or one I, of the I things that you, that you, that you like, eh, you know, I don't really feel like I didn't know this. If I knew this now, if you would read a piece from that, that would, that would be very I, groovy. I could, sh- I could share a story about or it. Or share, share a story about it. And then maybe I, if you, would, yeah. So my first full length book of poetry yeah, I thought that I was the cat's fucking meow. And so every poem that I wrote went into this. And it was a through a publisher that wasn't very like uh, careful or discerning about poetry in particular. So yeah, like submit I, it. Hey, so you know, we're not going to edit it. You know, you yeah. So everything that I wrote for a year and a half went into this book and it's cringeworthy now it's you know it's like it's like a you know it's like a little kid's diary in poetry and like you know and uh i would say out of the that book that's got a couple maybe 120 150 pages i don't even remember maybe there are like five or six good poems and maybe out of the other 60 poems if I looked at them now, I could create another five or six decent poems and that, you know, do the math. The rest of them are total crap. Yeah. You you know, I, I've heard some people say, oh, just clump everything together that you've had this single thing. And I'm like, that's a thing. But you got to really mold it and take your time. Like, uh, you know, that that can lead to some interesting things. But of course, you know, looking back on it. You, you can see your growth and you can see how, you know, okay, that's what I guess I needed to do at the time. Yeah. There are certain points in, of acceleration in my writing career that, um, you know, really helped me turn the corner. And, uh, you know, those were, I mean, those were huge. You know, I learned so much like in the, in the early two thousands, you know, back when people actually did writing and writing critiques online instead of just posting their stuff like, hey, look at me, this is great. I wrote this or I published that. I mean, that's all. We're on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. Not not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, necessarily. But I I Um, joined a bulletin board called Scrawl, the writers the the writers asylum, and there were a lot of published poets and published short story writers. And when I joined, I already had three books. And but I joined. I basically I learned craft and I learned uh, so much through those other writers. And, you know, we would critique each other's work like twice a week. And Mm. uh, that was that was one um, that was one point of acceleration. And, uh, you know, that if I don't think if I didn't join Scrawl, 
I would have not the pe- met the people that molded me as a writer. I probably would not have started the Dire Literary series. I mean, who knows? I mean, you make these decisions in life just like you make decisions in writing. And if you take the you take a certain fork, it's got these wonderful implications that when you've done something, when you've made a good decision. And, you know, the fact that I joined that particular writing group was a very good decision in Foresight. Mm. I like I like that. I, I was hoping there was going to go to a spork in that in that in that in that uh, in that answer. But uh, I'll, I'll let it fly. Um, you know, anywho, I can say some really weird things. And I find that sometimes that <laughs> that's what you need to do. And, and it, you know, it's like life is are these decisions that we make. And, you know, when for me, when you kind of mold it into the process with that, then that, that's when you start to grow. And I wondered, you know, how does, um, you know, you know, your your work with, uh, you know, as a co-editor, uh, a founding co-editor, that is, um, you know, how, how did you find yourself get into that? And, you know, of that circle, because um, I, I always find that that's that's interesting and it can be so it can be tough. I'm not you know, I once tried like, oh, I'm going to be create a, you know, you know, a, a magazine, you know, an online thing. And it's like, no, you know, I can't. That's a tough thing to do. And it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of courage and a lot of strength to do and to bring in. And, you know, I wonder if you could just talk a bit about your experience of that, because that can also be incredibly time consuming. If it comes yes. that many individuals are submitting and all these things and it's like, Oh no, I don't want to do it, you know, but I want new voices, but I don't want just the same people I have and all these things. And, you know, it's like, let, let, let's, let's, let's peel away and peel into your mind as you know, you know, during that process of certain yeah. things or certain tough decisions. Well, it's like careful what you wish for. Like if you okay. want to, if you <laughs> want to start a print, uh, a print anthology or a monthly literary um, <laughs> print edition, um, be prepared to lose money and not make money. So careful what you wish for there. If you want to start an online journal, very often people like it's like buying a new car. When they start, it's all shiny and new. Then after three years, they're like, well, do I need to trade this in? And that's very often what uh, happens. Or and after a year, you could get a car wash for the first time. Yeah. So the literary <laughs> magazine, like online, if it's doing really well, that's great. But the bad news is suddenly you've gone from 100 submissions a month to 1,000 because it's doing really well. So And then I mean, you gotta, you got to read it. Yep. So do you want, I mean, is that what you really wanted? I mean, um, that's fine if that's what you want to do. And you, but I mean, I need time to write myself. Um, right. And that balance, which is so important because you can't do everything as much as at least for, I'm speaking for me. I hope I'm not projecting, you true. know, yeah, yeah. I, I can't do everything as much as I'd like to, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's that's the thing. And like I remember when I wrote my first novel, it was called The Thursday Appointments of Bill Sloan. That was I. And that's when I took a couple of years away from Wilderness House. Now, Wilderness House mm. Literary Review, Review isn't my magazine. I just read all the fiction. And uh, OK, but I also knew. But you that, do like, with with Heat City. 
uh, you are uh, you founded. Yeah, it was founded yeah, yeah, and yeah. It lasted one online issue and one print issue. And it's just um, we didn't realize what we were getting into. But um, mm-hmm. but, you know, again, out hmm. of luck, I would say we got some really great submissions from uh, some folks that were really, really fantastic writers. And, you know, um, I don't I don't regret doing that at all. I mean, I love actually reading submissions. It helps my writing big time, mm. you know, like like it, it helps me see what I need to avoid. And even like like I read some really great, great pieces and then maybe they miss the layup at the end or or I read mm. a really strong piece. And suddenly at the end, there's this huge explosion of fireworks that really shouldn't be there. So there's some very stuff. So it allows me to fine tune my writing by by reading others just the same way, like reading a great book or a great short story or a great novel um, helps me see what I need to do correctly as well. Mm. So I you know, that's a great point. And the whole thing is that we can learn from everyone and from, um, you know, everything and. you know, we can learn to uh, make those layups, shoot those hoops, uh, you know, and where there need to be fireworks, we can and we can tone it down when need to be. So I wondered if, if you would, I'm going to, you know, be warned, I'll use these really cheesy, almost like pickup lines of, you know, uh, sure. for for ways to would you please instead of just say read something, uh, blah, I'll say, you know. Would you please throw us a layup and l- have us uh, make fireworks inside our hearts now for you? That's I'm ready. me saying to read something. I'm ready. So yeah, gonna, yeah. So I'm gonna read. A, I think I'm gonna read a couple poems. And uh, and uh, I had a book of poetry come out in October called uh, "Spreading Like Wildflowers." Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna read the first three poems in and that. First, and where can people um, who like this find it? Um, you can find mostly where all good books are sold. Uh, a lot of during the, the virus, um, you can go online and order from your favorite indie bookstore. Um, if that's not your cup of tea, you can order from Amazon. Uh, or we'll I, I, I we'll prefer, talk about that more uh, later. Yeah, uh, I, I, I want to get I into prefer, that. <laughs> I mean, I would prefer that people order directly from my publisher, which is Big Table Publishing. And, okay, uh, BigTablePublishing.com. So that um, that helps them out, and you know, and that also, uh, you know, it might be a, a little bit extra change in uh, the writer's pocket as well. So I'm going to read a piece called Concerto. I became lost in the bell curve which a saxophone's note made me contemplate, please stay present because I found this watching out for snakes is something celebrated. Will you ponder a geometrical illusion, area and circumference, the formulas, always the formulas, lips which suck a reed are thrown down, either worthy at music, worthy at math, unlucky at cards, not timorously we spread out our old comforter. Second one, 
this poem is like a bruise. This poem is like a bruise, a deep black lake of superior knocking over the white caps, rolling into their last breaths. It's an angry purple from the rage of red until the flattening of color blends into a subdued yellow of surrender. If you're weak of mind, this poem is not a holiday. It does not twinkle, nor are its words lights from a city observed upon the descent, each a pushpin of hope. If you wait, there is a tiny ripple when a coin is flipped into a well. Hollow is the eye socket, deep and empty. Um, you know, I really like that. It, what's that line? Hollow, um, you know, it, it, uh, you know, the coin ripped into the well. Hollow like an eye socket. Deep, deep and empty. Oh. And... The progression of this poem is the progression mm. of a blue, of a bruise itself. It starts out right. red and then it gets purple and then it gets yellow. And, you know, talking about a black eye, it makes yeah. your eye sock. It makes everything deep and empty. So can uh, 12-year-old Timmy relate? 12-year-old um, Timmy would not know what the fuck that poem was about. <laughs> oh, yeah, because he didn't do any of that stuff. You know, he would be like, are you on drugs or something? <laughs> 12-year-old Timmy was playing dice baseball games in his room and hitting, having Mickey Mantle hit 55 home runs. All right, um, another point. Yeah. Well, I wondered if first we could, we could talk a bit about that uh, before we kind of get in. Sure. Um, yeah, so I was wondering just for, you know, it, you know, it, it's interesting that we kind of have, um, you know, I want to focus for the bruise one. It, it, we our lives are kind of like these series of bruises and I can find for me, you know, I like to talk a lot about vulnerability as someone, you know, who's, um, you know, neurodiverse and you yes. know, a recovering addict. And I think for me, that's important. We have these bruises in life that shape us with these events that kind of go into, we talk about how, you know, the, these certain uh, moments, you know, you say mold us and mold our work. I think that it's interesting to look at it that way of uh, these colorations, these different uh, you can flip through the brook of our own lives. And so I really like that and the imagery there. And you can also think of it. I thought of just a skipping stone or a coin, you know, and it's yeah. like which yeah. way are things going to go? Um, well, there's also. Yeah, there's also a part of it, too, that, you know, it was kind of an, someone gave me an accidental critique once. And and I find this, too, as a metaphor, like mm. as, when you write, you need to have a certain swagger and it's it's almost the same swagger. A Holden like, Caulfield swagger, maybe. Yeah, like it's there's a swagger that like there are certain people that like, you know, will wear their bruises with pride. And I think writers need to wear their bruises and their traumas like pride and have a swagger around it because you, you're going to, as a writer, present those things to the world. And either you can have the swagger about it, like this is my life or this is how I think or this is how I feel about things, or you can like have no confidence with it and be like, well... I'm not going to bloom with it. I'm, I'm going to maybe write about it, but um, I'm going to feel um, buried by it. And 
I, mm. I, I believe in order to present the work and even to present the work to yourself on the page, you, you need to have that swagger because otherwise, like to me, it would just feel like pure torture. Like, mm. you know, my inner, my inner editors, that emptiness. Yeah. My inner editor is harsh as hell. Like, oh my God. When I'm writing, my editor's screaming at me, you suck. This is terrible. Blah, blah, blah. And I need to be like, you know, screw it. Screw you. I'm, I'm going on. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to mold this. And when I'm done, I'm going to tell you to shut up. That's a great uh, commercial. That, that would be for a great, you know, warning, you know, commercial, a message for a better foundation, you know, a better <laughs> life for, 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 you know, for editor, uh, for editors or some of your inner editor. Tell your inner editor to, you know, shut up or, you know, screw you. Screw your inner editor. A message for a better writing. Or, exactly. No, 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 yeah, yeah. I just, I just thought that was a little funny. Um, so yeah, if you would, um, I wonder if you could, um, you know, you know, share about just, uh, you know, a piece, uh, a bit about, um, your, um, your, your, you know, another piece that maybe pertains to your bruises and how your, you know your relationships in life maybe specifically have, have, um, you know, the bruises that you've faced have, you know, shaped your work. Um, all right. Well, uh, just keep talking. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I wasn't prepared to, I don't have that in queue, but I, I know which poem, if I can find it, that I would like to read. Um, that is very much what we were talking about. Does that hmm. make sense? Yeah. And I might be influenced by I have this this film that's in front of me that just sitting here, uh, you know, of course, that's Magnolia. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. That's by, I, uh, I do know of it. Yeah, no. And it's like the interconnected interweaving of all these things. And it's just like so, you know, maybe that's influencing me. And I find for me, like I'm influenced by all these things in these subconscious ways. So I don't know if you could ever prepare for anything enough you know it's like what's enough of preparation uh all right i actually great job great job filling that because <laughs> i actually i flipped through uh one of my books and i found the poem so there uh, oh, there you go so all right so this is this is when i think of my childhood hmm. i think of family a picture we hold together perhaps a painting the one of fruit in a bowl Sometimes when I stare, I swear I see the soft parts turn bad, the bruises on the playground. Every apparatus brought fearful results. The jungle gym, my throat choked at a bar, a seesaw, comrades leapt off. I sat at the top of a slide, punched all the way to the bottom. At age 16, 140 pounds, an empty pit, my ribs stuck out like a stepladder, my toothpick arms with bulbous hinges. I think it impossible to fill my stomach, not that we were wanting, just a never-ending well. To think, was I saved by my great escapes? I had to come back from those years later when the merry-go-round spun me dry. I woke up late that morning, still no longer a boy, subsisting. Living in my head was easy to do with nothing to do. The smoke you see raging from my ears is just my image in the mirror made quite a sight of myself. I hoped to be different. 
That that's me snapping. That that's a great, you know. That I there's so much imagery, um, and also there's so much, you know. I can relate, you know, that that feeling you feel where it's like, this isn't enough or whatever. It's like, you know, who is this person? And there are times, and we can all have that. It's like this this isn't right, and there are others like, this is beautiful. This is who I am. Yeah, and and yeah, and that poem really is to offer hope. And there's a lot of hope from like, you know, it's easy to, you know, it's easy to really like if you're talking to someone that has depression to be like, you know, hang in there or it will get better. And but the thing is, like, you know, there is a hope that you can see through experience that yeah, life does get better. And uh you know, there's there's a way out of nearly everything. And, uh, you know, I think I'm living living proof for a lot of that. I mean, being an alcoholic and addict myself and, uh, you know, yeah. I'll have, you know, I'll have 10 years sobriety in November. And you know, congrats. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing what came out of my medical record, too. Like after a certain number of years of being sober, what what they said was in remission, and you know we're not talking about like cancer, like depressions and remission. Mm. You know things wow. that are just wow. Wow, we're yeah. having had a major episode of of a certain thing. Just like that's that's incredible. Substance abuse remission. I mean the word remission is yeah. used in oh, a positive yeah. way in your medical records is pretty <laughs> is pretty yeah. amazing. Absolutely. You know I I found out that I think it was uh you know I had gone. You know, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, got sober like what, you know, a little, I guess a little under five years ago. I get uh, over four years ago. Better to round down for me. I don't know. And I went to the, I was thinking about this because I got an email regarding for my, of last year's finally of like my, my blood, you know, stuff. And which is really good. Like all my, you know, my rate, you know, whatever, everything's all groovy. But I actually went like, a doctor like like two three days before I got sober and you know it's like I wonder what what was up there you know <laughs> so that yeah. just reminded me of that when you said that but but it, it's important for that hope and kind of you really capture this feeling as well this 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 unrest and this 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 message of hope which is important and it's great that we can utilize that and you know i also i said i would get to it but uh, um yeah that you you know you're a big supporter a major supporter of um you know of looking for in you know the indie bookstores or the things of like uh, i know from 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 the time that i've just known you for you know not too long but with your uh you know reincarnation so to speak of 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 dire uh literary series that you did with um you know with the virtual setting of uh you know what's going on in these dark times these pandemic times these times of corona um that you you have a big emphasis on you know uh, you know for your feature reader what what indie bookstore do they like what do they choose what would they have um and it i think that's such an important message as i've said to individuals like you know and sorry for those who like amazon but i you know i think amazon somewhat you know it, it there's certain things it's not so good for other uh you know writers and it, it really destroys 
um, these other opportunities to support all these your local uh, bookstores or other things. And it's ever more important, I think, during these times that we're in now. Like this is the time to really try to find out a way to 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 support either online if they have online sales, you know, your you know preferred your 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 local seller. Um, yes, I agree. I just wondered, like, what kind of uh, you know, what was your if you had like a little bit of an experience, um, you know, what kind of brought you to get involved with that to get there? Was it just from, oh, I'm publishing these books and I'm like, man, I'm not really Amazon is kind of being this opposite thing of, well, uh, of, of what it should be doing, of, of helping. I, not that. Yeah. yeah. What I like with the indie bookstore is it's this comfortable little meeting place that each little store has a certain character to it. Now, I, um, most indie bookstores, a lot of them, are, they're all different for in different ways. Like, uh, so even if you go, you're not even talking about online sellers. I mean, back in like the 90s and when Barnes & Noble was really big, you can walk into a Barnes & Noble. It didn't matter if you walked into to one in Iowa or Connecticut or New Jersey, you're walking into the same store. And so I love the indies and the indies also, uh, you know, they're friendly to indie writers. Yeah. So there's what, this great I, one, uh, Sideshow Books. That's this, it's more like they, they take it of this thing. And there's like, you know, where I'm at in, in LA, there's this great one of, you know, of, I guess it's indie, I'd say of a mystic journey bookstore. And it's just, great and they have this little patio and um you know these things i miss those have you I been to, to to book show i have I, not. I, I read in la i read in book show which is a really cool little place i have not oh you you would love it it's really yeah. eclectic and uh it's a small little store and the owner's there all the time and she's awesome and uh you know i did a i did a reading there with amy dresner and uh, oh yeah, and it was just it was it was it was marvelous. But uh, <laughs> so so re, so redoing Dyer and and you know getting these big names like the people that I've had on the online virtual Dyer, it's like an all star team. You know, all of these right. writers. And I guess you amazing. kind of get to do that because of you know Zoom and certain te- of the technology that we can have that is a blessing, uh, you know, a curse and a blessing. And I guess you can take advantage of that now. Well, and also too like. Because I ran Dyer in a non-virtual way, and I also ran the Somerville News Writers Festival, like, I had met these people before briefly. And, you know, the curious part of me is like, okay, let's promote their favorite indie bookstore. So I'm always curious about what their favorite indie bookstore is and what it is like. And, uh, you know, like, so when we had Kim Andonizio, it was City Lights. You know, she's from right. San yeah. Fran. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Of and, uh, you know, Nick Flynn's, you know, Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. Uh, you have to think, okay, you know, Nick lived in Boston and he, you know, he, he taught in Brooklyn and now he's in Texas. But he still has this um, allegiance to his favorite bookstore that's still in Brooklyn. So, like... So in a way, it's cur- I'm really curious when these folks talk about their favorite bookstore, where does this bookstore kind of fit in to their lives? It's almost the same way as like when I'm reading a novel, like, and I'm wondering, 
how is this part of this book like their real life? Because, you know, you you do you you kind of learn about the author themselves when you read their book. And so for me, I'm learning a kind of about the authors themselves when they note what their favorite indie bookstore is. It, it, it encompasses their surround world, so to speak, their entire or, or umwelten, uh, this kind of, you know, I studied also some philosophy, this this kind of, uh, you know, their senses, their whole experience, it's their whole environment that shapes their world. You have this book there, this book there, all these things. And, it, it, you know, these things kind of, like I was saying with the, the you know, the copy of Magnolia that's out here, they, these things influence you, whether you whether you like it or not. And, and can yeah. we have it influence us, in a, you know, for the best? And it's really important to keep, yeah, it's really important to keep these indie bookstores alive, not because they're special places and they're all different. It's just like, you know, we have seen in our society so many beautiful things just disappear and, you know, you know, not necessarily philosophically, like things philosophically disappearing. Right. But, you know, just even like rare endangered species are disappearing and just like, you know, local flower shops, local markets, local bookstores, like I don't want them to disappear in my lifetime. And it's, you know, it's very, very possible. Like one of the saddest things is when I asked Michael Keith, who was my feature last week, you know, what's your favorite indie bookstore? He said, oh, New England Mobile Book Fair, but I don't think they made it through this. And, you know, that Mm. made me, and that really made me sad because I know the New England Mobile Bookstore. It used to be this huge barn-like warehouse and they had every book. It was a book warehouse and uh, they had every book ever. And they didn't list the books alphabetically. They listed them by publisher, which was just totally mm. awesome. And uh, a few years ago, he downsized. And because uh, the upkeep of the uh, the warehouse setting was too much. And, uh, you know, the gentleman who's, who saved that store was Tom Lyons. And he's struggling. And I wish I could, you know... I wish I could go to their site and buy all of their books and keep the mobile, you know, book fair going. And, uh, you know, that just made me really sad. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of, uh, you know, for me, I just want to say this, that um, that I had, um, you know, because I, I grew up in the Pacific Palisades in, in, in Los Angeles, California for the Palisades. And, you know, there, there used to be, you know. Mort's Deli, all these things, all these things in little mm. places, mom pop shops, these things kind of came in and there was a village bookstore, this bookstore. And then they, they had these mics and all this stuff. And I found out more about it of how much it was because I wasn't as engaged in poetry and those things. I was just, you know, and one of the people who worked there was a good, um, you know, you know, the, the mother of a good friend of mine, of, of my god sister. Um, and you know, they, they had this change and then they lost it and all these things of going under and they tried to get even, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Tom Hanks to come in to help to even save it. And, and, and the store and when when Tom Hanks can't save a store for that of that uh, or of certain things of attracting for that and it doesn't work, then you know you're in trouble. And then you fast forward later of, you know, all these years, 10, 12 years later or something, you know, uh, and then you get, um, you know, boom, the Caruso, you know, not to attack, but, you know, the Caruso village 
uh, you know, the, this whole thing, uh, you know, the person who did the Grove and you have all that stuff there and all these different places. And boom, what do you have put there? You have an Amazon put, you know, right by on the other corner and, um, you know, and, you know, places like this, then you can have the, um, you know, so, so for, you know, rioters that might come for stuff. Okay. Let's, let's, you know, I'm, you know, the one with big money that can pull, so we can not to get all political, you know, let, let's get some, you know, giant, you know, you know, the, the national money. guard to come in because we don't want people of all these things to mess with this. And yet, you know, you, you think about, you know, what, you know, you know, a decade before something or more, and you think of, uh, you know, and Tom Cruise, you know, it, it couldn't even to save this. And it, it, you think of the change of what's happening. Um, I mean, yeah, some that, that, so that just like is just, you know, that just came through and it reminded me of that. Um, yeah. Some change is like inevitable. There's a section that I wrote in Joe the Salamander. Right. That's that your that's your new um, yeah. your new. So, that was for the semifinalists for the, the Holland yeah. Prize. And you're currently seeking, uh, you know, some representation for it, representation for it. So yeah. If anybody's uh, interested, you know. Please do, you know, um, please do. So like what I'm, uh, yeah. So what I was, there's a section of that book that mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the matriarch of the family, she goes back, she's from Cambridge and they moved to Phoenix, Arizona. So she goes back to visit her parents in Cambridge and it takes place in the 90s. And they have this conversation about how Harvard Square has changed and it gets, and I'm, you know, I comedic, I comedically poke fun at the fact that the that Millie's father is nostalgic for the uh, the gas station that had the, you know, which is the the gas station that used to have the the horse with wings. Um, well, I forget, but it, it used to be smack in the middle of uh, Harvard Square, like, and uh, he's nostalgic for that, and. Uh, you know, a gas station and, you know, people are nostalgic for certain things and, you know, they, they made it into an office building, but, uh, you know, like Harvard square is a perfect example of what we were talking about. Like, you know, the tasty diner and, uh, you know, the worst house and all of these places are now like, you know, Starbucks and, uh, you know, exactly. Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's and, uh, yeah. yeah. And I, I've heard that, you know, you're doing really interesting things. I want to, uh, with, 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 Joe the Salamander, I know it, it, it doesn't, you know, have yet uh, for representation, but, uh, you know, you, you've talked to me a bit about it and um, you sent me some stuff. And I think it's I've heard a bit of uh, some sections and, and I wonder if you could because uh, if you'd be willing to share a bit of what it's about and maybe read a piece of it. Um, you I, know, could, I could do that if you if you feel because I know like it, it's a really fascinating. I think it's a really interesting concept. And, um, you know, I personally, um, you know, relate to it. Um, yeah. The, uh, yeah. So Joe the Salamander is the story. Of, it follows the character Joe from infancy to his mid to late 30s and He's neurodiverse. Um, some might consider him on the spectrum. Some might consider autism. But 
I don't use any of those words in the book. I just basically, a lot of the book is in Joe's point of view. And uh, it's, um, he is. That's what's Joe. so fascinating about it. Because it goes back to the notion of like, do we need a word to label and and just describe it, all these things of what's going on without like saying it. And that's what I find is, you know, that it's not that like, boom, we're going to say what I think really makes it and why it's so important as a novel. And uh, also, yeah, and, and Joe his whole life, very often people in that position, they have difficulty express themselves. All they try to do is avoid conflict. Yet by avoiding conflict, they tend to cause conflict. Conflict, they're, exactly. They're not interacting. They inadvertently or do things and they're not interacting properly. So Joe's avoidance of conflict is that he learned that the word yes is a positive word. If he just yes to people to death, that was the one single word that he says throughout the book, except to his mom. And uh, his mom, he's, and, and there's, there's sections that no one's kind of believing the mom. And, uh, you know, but, but Joe has this trust for that one person. And, uh, you know, that, that happens later on in the book, there's somebody else, but I don't want to give that away because that's a major thing. So, um, don't so give when that I'm, away. so when I'm asked to read a section of it, you know, I'll, I'll read sec, I'll read chapter one and, uh, chapter one is, um, it's a small will you, section. Will you won us over with chapter Here's one because you already have won us over. So we're starting <laughs> so we're starting obviously we're starting chapter one at the moment of his birth. Joe was born into the searing bright light, and when the doctor slapped him, he didn't cry or do much of anything. When he slapped him again, and Joe still did not cry, the delivery team went ahead and ran all the tests for newborns. Joe had a perfectly logical reason to not cry, but no one would ever know it. Joe's coloring was perfect, a healthy bright red and he was breathing well enough even with a small amount of amniotic fluid in his lungs this was not enough red flags for the doctors to be worried about his well-being his ACGAR scale rating was a six recording two points each for appearance pulse and respiration categories but had zeros in the categories for grimace and activity joe was measured to have zero reaction to outside stimulus as his mother, Millie, cradled him in the hospital bed, Joe lay there like a lump, almost afraid to ask for anything, as if a newborn would need anything more than a cuddle or perhaps the dampening of lights, sound, or chaos. Joe's father, Adrian, wasn't anywhere to be found. It wasn't because he was an absentee, absentee father or avoiding the happenings of Joe's birth, but rather he was more than happy to pass out candy cigars to strangers on the street. There was a certain beauty in such a basic interaction. Here, have a cigar made from candy, and you'll never have to see me again. Much less beautiful was that was that right before Joe passed. Um, I just lost my place. Hang on a second. Much less beautiful was that right before Joe passed, at, before Adrian passed out a cigar, he had to push his inexpensive glasses back up against the bridge of his nose, more so than he usually did. Sweat. We'll do that. Millie wasn't concerned with Adrian's disappearance. She knew he was odd, unable to properly read social cues, logical, inflexible, and miserably anxious most of the time. He was a freak, but he was her freak. His parents died in a car accident when he was 12, and because of this, 
she knew he would never leave her. He even said, when we go, we must go at the same time. Millie knew her husband was the kind of person who would simmer in an emotion until the affect dissipated, almost the same way the horn of an approaching train builds in speed, peaks into a crescendo, then disappears into thin air. It was like a bell curve, and Adrian, like all good accountants, understood how measurements ebbed and flowed. During Millie's pregnancy, he had earned her trust about being a hands-on parent, something that his foster care placements tended to be clueless about. Meanwhile, Joe, at this point, was making no sounds at all. He's going to be a good baby, Millie thought. He's going to be no trouble at all. The nursing staff was very troubled, though. Isn't he a darling, they only say, before moving on to the next patient in the maternity ward, where their babies were also said to be darlings, beautiful, gorgeous, or handsome. There were other darlings, too, all within Millie's earshot, but because no matter how unique a baby is, there's only so many adjectives one could think of during a 12-hour shift. Left on their own, the words possibly brain damage had been spoken between some of them. But Millie didn't know that. She only knew that every baby couldn't be darling, beautiful, gorgeous, and handsome, just like adults couldn't be all good things. Even if someone called her beautiful, she would shape the words into the reality of her understanding. She knew she was only just tall enough or attractive enough to get by. She knew she blended in. This is why Millie was cynical when it came to compliments. She knew the nurses were just doing their jobs. And Joe wasn't darling at all. The nurses obviously had to say positive things, the same way car salesmen would trumpet the only outstanding quality of a shitty car. The engine might not be powerful, but it gets excellent gas mileage. Perhaps the nurses were trained to be this way, or rather wouldn't have jobs if they told the honest truth. Maybe Joe was the opposite of darling, but she thought he was about perfect. So what did their opinions matter? All of these thoughts, after just having given birth, exhausted her, and she was asleep immediately after closing her eyes, and then immediately after she was assigned a hospital room. And that is chapter one. Well, we get a lot of mileage in those two pages, that's for oh sure. Oh, yeah. Tons of mileage. You get so much. I'm really look interested in, in, in this book and what happens with it of, uh, you know, absolutely. You know, thank you so much. I wondered, um, you know, would you, you know, drive with me so we could get a lot of mileage out of the ebbs and flows of our, you know, regretful and fearful and magnolia-rific segment that I like to call OTSCP, on-the-spot collaborative uh, poem, and uh, I asked you to, um, you know, put, you know, three or four books out or so, um, and, and you'll love this. The books I put out were are all from the Dire Virtual series features. Oh, so I, I have yes, a, yes. I have a Michael Keith book. I have a Nick Flynn book, and I have a Andre Debuse book. So terrific. So we're going to do this. Okay. We are going to do this. So the name of the game, folks, for those listening, is we have you know, three or four books out, uh, random, random, uh, you know, 
you know, random pages. Both sides are up for each one. And, you know, where our eyes are drawn to, um, those are the words that we're, we're going to go and say those and just kind of string these words together to create a line from these books. And then, you know, we'll go back and forth and do that. And that is what constitutes the OT uh, S. Uh, so we're going CP. For, yeah, so we're going for one line each. OK, we can. Do yeah, that. yeah. Say some lines can be long, depending. It's what constitutes a breath. You know what you can get out of a breath. You know, okay. let's make every moment count, you know. <laughs> yeah. So first off, so I'm going to share for me, I have, um, you know, I have Tolstoy. I, I particularly I like to say the pages I have of Tolstoy's short stories. Um, I have uh, it's out to master and man of pages 224 and 225. I have uh you know, Franz Kafka, um, for his, uh, collected stories, um, you know, uh, and I have pages 154 and 155, and then I have Girdle, Girdle Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter, I have it out to, uh, to, uh, pages, let me see, there's, you know, 153 and 152. Okay. Okay. So, um, would you like to go first and start okay let's try this let's try this yeah peering out from the carapace someone on the side barked out signals i remain inert in my resolve the rains muttered the execution began as soon as Lucas numbers perfect lies. Blasting his big beak with my fist, sobbing, pleading, running, fast as my legs carry me. Tucking the loose addressing shoulder, the commander you were yesterday in terms of simpler, compressed poems. Mine of loneliness, his of high blood pressure. He was big at three with a thick head of hair. That my methods carried out his waist tightening a thick layer of 20 times the sleigh of snow. He thought of Gary's new lean face at the lake. After the socks won, his two friends pulled up chairs at the round card table. Hmm, that's an evocative bill. Our look of transfiguration verdict, a casual but commandant proceedings, you might sit on benches, reading the main log. Most of the workers sip coffee, many smoke. A new sound 
away from the damn thing. He's probably asleep. The officer left him for a common soldier. A near-perfect machine, the pistons all lined up and firing between my legs, the asphalt unspooling below like sandpaper. I ought to wield Mr. T, a fondness for Achilles, and ten years after, the world champion of unpredictability and recursion, Hofstadter's withdraw from the officer out of his, thank God, bad cigarettes. Not even on the most mindless TV show, I had no way to distract myself from the awful, oppressive gloom I felt. At last, am I to die cautiously balanced this time or work more carefully away from the cursing use into the basin that you disprove? Singing was going on in the dining room. A group of us, without a plate or anything, ate out of a brown paper bag. It was mashed potatoes. I was a wolf and listened to such fools again on my stomach into the basin, working the now in itself. My mom says lovemaking is like dancing. Once you find a partner, you just wait for the music to start up. And wrap myself drunk in an energetic struggle until he finished his cleaning. My father tells him it was actually an entire display of stewed tomatoes that came crashing down on him. Increasing behavior can act another pot of tea from Chinese, certainly old, well-tried conclusions out of the sleigh. At the shed, they arrive at the same time, carrying buckets of water. It's not long before they have doused the flames. Listen, fools, I exclaimed to strike one this time. The damn thing couldn't stay. It was a wolf, attentively Phosphorus.
So our toast is always soft and cool on one side after digging around for a minute come up with a couple of wrinkled dollar bills. Snowballing as a matter of convention, it takes longer to explore foreign or nothing a strong fence of the presiding judge. His labor doesn't look all that good. An intense pitch. He agrees. Clip some off the back of my neck. All doubt strained to listen across the horse's back privilege, squatting over a child, gazing at the fact. You wouldn't conceal our bill. Hmm, that's an evocative lies of compressed poems. There are bearings to be voted on. Who's talking about checking into detox? Without growing restless, I better mount the sackcloth to deceive his knees again and again without a light or the invitation. The mind created everything. The mind can repair anything. Ooh, let's end it there. Okay. <laughs> well, thank do you. you. Do, do you mm. type those up? I do. I will type these up. Viewers, you know, please do the OTSCP with your, your friends. Listen and please check out uh, uh, Tim Timothy Gager's uh, books. Go to Big Table Publishing and please purchase um, his latest uh, book is Eighth of Poetry. Um, and please, please support your indie bookstores and, and you guys will potentially, depending on what Timothy will do with it, I'm going to, uh, you know, type it up, format it, not make any, not make any, uh, changes in terms of words or, but, uh, I'll, I'll put some punctuation and then send it to Timothy and, and, you know, if he wants to share it or whatnot, you know, do whatever, that's all groovy. And I, I type it up and yeah, it's been an honor to have you on, to ebb and flow with you, and uh, to make bruises out of uh, out, out of out of uh, bios. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. I was uh, I was a good time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Again, uh, BigTablePublishing.com. Timothy Gager. Please check out his work. Again, please check out Spreading Like Wildflowers. And support, support, support. Okay, take care.